text of this sermon is found in the sixth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. The sixth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. That's the last book in the Pentateuch. I said that because I wanted you to know I went to seminary. And it's the fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I'll begin reading at verse 3. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive, tree, olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. As far as Thanksgiving is concerned, you can divide the mass of people into two classes, those who take things for granted and those who take things with gratitude. There are some people who see things as a matter of course, and there are others who see things as a matter of God. And man, and perhaps justifiably so, has been pictured as a base ingrate, more likely to take things for granted than with gratitude. In the days of Jesus, there were ten lepers who were cleansed, but only one returned to say thank you. I wonder if the percentage is any better. Shakespeare said, I, If I were to travel the world over among the choice spices, I would scarcely meet with a frankincense of gratitude. It ought to be as common as the dewdrops that hang on the hedge in the morning. But alas, this world is dry of its thankfulness to God. And Israel stands in our text at a pivotal point in her history. Behind her are the horrors of Egyptian bondage and the memories of the wilderness wandering. And before her are the marvelous opportunities and blessings of a land that flows with milk and honey. And God is getting her ready before she goes in. Well, what place would God have in her life? He is teaching her to take things with gratitude. 
for her national security, whether she lives and prospers in the new land, is dependent upon her becoming people of thankful hearts who understand that God is the source of everything she possesses, even her life. It is not unlike where our nation stands, I think, today. Behind are the recent memories of the horrors of Lebanon and the invasion of Granada and the uh, financial unrest at home and the political unrest abroad. And before us are the greatest opportunities that any nation has ever known. It is not unlike the position we stand where we stand in our church today, for I'm absolutely convinced that these are the golden years of our church. If we can just learn to see things as a matter of God, if we can just learn to take things with gratitude. And so from an ancient day come some tremendous lessons for Thanksgiving 83. And one of them is this that life and all that life contains is principally a gift from someone else. And they are about to dwell in cities that they did not have to build. And they're going to go in and live in houses full of furniture that they did not have to, to buy and erect. And they're going to drink from wells that they did not have to labor and dig. And they're going to live and eat off of vineyards that they did not have to plant. For everything they were going to possess in the new land was planned and provided for them by God. And so he takes some time to burst the illusion that what was theirs to enjoy was the gist of their own genius. It was not. It was a strategic lesson that Israel had to learn that life and all that life contained for them was a gift from someone else's hand. It was the result of someone else's labor. I wonder if we're willing to admit that today, that most of what we enjoy in this affluent society is really because of someone else's sacrifice and someone else's labor. It was Robert Louis Stevenson who wrote, We pay our way so little in life, even though our purses are continuously open, the greater part of service goes unrewarded. Are you willing to admit that today, that most of what you and I enjoy has been bought by someone else's blood and paid for by someone else's sacrifice? One of the most moving experiences of my life, I think I've shared this, was to stand in the war memorial in Cambridge, England. I didn't even know such a place existed until I got there. And there in this war memorial are the names of the men who died, uh, American soldiers and servicemen who died to make us free. And I stood in that place, went down the names alphabetically until I came to Tidwell Wrath. And in my memory is this brother that I hardly knew who left home when I was six years of age. And as I stood there in that place knowing that I was breathing air that was free, standing on a place that was free because of the blood he spilt and the sacrifice he made. I was deeply emotionally moved. I went home from church Wednesday night and my wife and daughter were already in bed and my son was in his room and I sat down to just to relax a little bit and watch a little TV. I took off my shoes and... Uh, undid my tie and I was just turned on Saint Elsewhere. 
Now, I know you folks who come to Wednesday night prayer service and uh, stay for choir practice don't get to see St. Elsewhere. But that subplot that night was about this young surgeon whose wife had slipped and fallen in her bathtub and had uh, suffered massive head injuries and had died. But before her death, she donated her heart to medical science. And there was this lady waiting for a heart transplant in the hospital, just the right one. And so they got her heart in gooey, a bloody thing. They, they, they showed the whole gruesome details. And they took her heart and transplanted it into the body of this woman. And this young surgeon didn't even know it was his wife's heart. Found out by accident, running up to surgery, just as the head surgeon came out. And he mumbled something about the compassion of his wife was what made possible the, the life of this woman. And in that kind of a scene that was dripping with melodrama, he just kind of stood there, moved by it. And then late that night, he slipped into ICU where he was not really supposed to be. And he sat down beside the bed of this woman who was alive because of his wife. And after a while, he took out his stethoscope and he went over there and he pulled back the hospital gown and he put that stethoscope over her heart. And he listened for a long time at his wife's heart beating. Now, we're not trying to be dramatic this morning. I want to tell you that I think that's what this text is saying. I think God is saying He wants us to listen and understand that some donor's heart beats in the body of this nation. And we're free today because of the sacrifice of someone else. We owe so much to so many. Each man here this morning owes his very existence to the male and female who cooperated in the act of His creation. And we owe our survival to the care and, and love of our parents who took care of us in the helplessness of our infancy. And we, know, we owe our body skills and our essential equipment for life to the knowledge that was accumulated by past generations and to teachers who passed that knowledge on to us. And we owe our opportunities, however limited, and to the culture and the society and the government and to policemen and doctors and lawyers who practice their vocation with the same zeal that we practice ours. And the people who do the great living are the people who understand that what they have is the result of someone else's labor. I think that the second lesson that comes emerges from this text is this. That we need to be aware that we have a tendency, we all have a tendency, to a kind of a forgetful ingratitude. It's just kind of inherent to, with prosperity, I think. For he says, now when you eat all of these good things and you live in this good land, watch yourself, be careful because you'll have a tendency to forget. We have a tendency to take these things for granted. I mean material things. You know the statistics. If you took this world of three billion people and compressed it to a thousand people and put them in one city, this would be the statistic. Of that thousand people, 60 would be Americans. 940 would be non-Americans. And the 60 Americans would own half the wealth of the city. The other half would be divided among the 940. 303 would be white. 697 would be non-white. 
the poorest man in the American section of town would be much richer than the average in the rest of the, of, of the town. And the American section of town, the average lifespan would be 70 years. In the rest of the city, in the 940, would die before they reached the age of 40. You wouldn't have any nursing homes in that section of town or geriatric hospitals. Literally, in the non-American section of town, the people would be poor and sick and hungry and diseased and ignorant. Over half of them would not be able to read or write. Over half of them would have never heard the name of Jesus. And over half of them would already be communists. Those are the statistics. Be careful lest you forget that. And so Jean went to Ruth's house and sat down to eat. They had just all kinds of food. And Jean just dug in and started eating. And Ruth said, aren't you going to have a prayer before your meal? And Ruth said, through a mouthful of potatoes, no, we don't take time for that. And it's bad enough to take things for granted, but we often take others for granted, even our loved ones. I heard about the young woman who was very thrifty. And she had this boyfriend who was always spending money on her, lavishing these marvelous gifts on her, and taking her to expensive restaurants. She didn't really want to spend all that money. And one day she said to her mother, I wish Fred wouldn't lavish all of this, these gifts on me. Tell me something I can do to keep Fred from spending all this money on me. And her mother said, marry him. Human love, because it is the greatest medicine there is. But then he said, you know, most people don't know what love is. Even those who consider themselves happily married. It's like the man he said, who says, I love oranges. And if the orange could reply, it would say, how can you say you love me? All you want to do is squeeze me, take the best I have out of me, and then throw me away. Now, there's not a person in this room this morning who has that kind of an attitude, but we're all willing to admit, are we not, that there's something about marriage that just causes us to take one another for granted. And sometimes we take one another for granted because of false pride. It was the mistake of Israel. The mistake Israel made was that she misunderstood the blessing of God and she thought that the reason she was so privileged is because she was so special. And she boasted in the pride that God had chosen her because she was special. Wasn't really the case. The only explanation for Israel's position as the chosen people of God was because of God's love and God's grace wasn't because of her prestige. She had none. She was just a little nation pressed between the desert and the sea. It wasn't because of her culture, because there were other nations around who had greater cultures than her. A man making a commentary on the book of Isaiah showed his disappointment that God chose Israel. He said, why he chose a motley group of slaves who were building the store cities of Egypt. Had I been king, I would have, had I been God, I would have chosen Egypt and so would you. Why, he said, Egypt had the greatest armies and the greatest wealth and the, and the greatest culture. The mind explodes when we think of what God could have done with Egypt. But he chose a motley group of slaves. It wasn't because of anything that Israel possessed. It wasn't because she was special. It was because God was special. 
And so if you take people for granted this morning, it may be because at least subconsciously you feel down deep inside you're better than they are. And so God comes to us and He says on Thanksgiving 83, you're no better than anyone else. You have what you have and you are what you are because of my grace. And this false pride builds these walls up between us and it, makes, it creates cliches and, and creates a, a little cliques and groups that come together to say we're better than he, we're better than she. That's why the, that's why the cross is so dynamic because the ground is level at the foot of the cross and that's why the church is so important because we're all the same here and we must not forget it. This is the company of the doomed and the damned who has been redeemed. Little girl didn't have that false pride who wrote, We have the neatest garbage man. He empties out our garbage can. He's just as nice as he can be. He always stops to talk to me. My mother doesn't like his smell. But then she doesn't know him very well. There's a third idea that comes out of this text is this, that gratitude doesn't come naturally. I mean, thanksgiving doesn't come naturally. It has to be taught, and it has to be continually taught. As a matter of fact, this is what he said. He says, now you listen to what I'm saying to you. Now, now there's something just emerged out of this this morning as I was reading it. As he taught them about God, as they were being taught about God, they were being taught to be thankful. As a matter of fact, that's what Israel did. That's what the Jews did when they met for their festivities. That's what the church did when they came together on the Lord's Day. They just told one another of what God had done. And he said, you've got to keep on doing this. You've got to do it every day. And you've got to put it on frontlets, things that they wore on their heads. And you've got to bind it on their hands so that every time they, they look at their watch or every time they wash their hands, they'll see it. And you put it on the doorpost of the house, on the inside and the out, and you put it on the gate so that when people pass, all they would notice are evidences of what God has done so you won't forget. It has to be taught continually. For gratitude is a discipline we have to practice. And that's why Paul said, in everything, give thanks. He didn't say, in everything, feel thankful. He just said, in everything, give thanks, do it as a discipline. And so William Steger decided he would practice the discipline of thanksgiving. And he remembered a lady who had taught him in high school something he didn't know about himself, that he loved poetry. And so one day he sat down, and with a discipline of thanksgiving, he wrote her a thank you note. He, re he received a reply. The reply said, as I write this, Willie, my eyes are blinded with tears. Of all the people that I've taught in school for these many years, you're the only person who has ever written to say thank you. And I want you to know I'll cherish this forever. It's a discipline we practice. Thanksgiving is an attitude we develop. And so he said, I want you to know, I want you to love God with all your heart and soul and mind. For out of that love for God, you will develop an attitude of gratitude. All of us, are, all of us know Anne Frank. We've all read her diary. At least we've seen her movie. Her and her family 
concealed refugees in Amsterdam until they were found by the, Nat by the Nazis and they were taken to a concentration camp and Anne Frank died there. Before her death, she wrote in her diary, almost every morning I go up into the attic and when my favorite spot on the floor, I look up into the blue sky and I say, as long as I have this and as long as I live to see it, cloudless skies and sunshine, I'll never be unhappy. Riches will fade, but unhappiness is only veiled. It will bring you happiness as long as you live. And as long as you can look courageously into the heavens, I tell you, thanksgiving is an attitude of a person who walks about with a heavenly look on his face. A man who understands that everything in life, even trials that come in life, are the result of a benevolent hand of God. And there's something good to be taught in it. And so a preacher friend of mine said he went to a leper colony in, in the heart of Nigeria and he met a man there who had leprosy. He said he had a stub for one hand, three fingers on the other hand and his feet were deformed, no toes and he was stooped. His ears and his lips were swelled because of the disease and when he spoke he mumbled because he could hardly speak. I thank God for leprosy. My friend said he stood back to listen. I thank God for leprosy. For when I contracted leprosy, they brought me to this leper colony. And in this leper colony, I found the Lord. That's an attitude you have to develop. One last word, please. Somebody accused me this morning of switching to four points when I started calling the football games. They said, well, you're going by quarters now. Four quarters. We had three points up until you started doing the football game. Well, this is quarter four. I mean, in the fourth quarter, fourth point. It is out of gratitude. Listen carefully. It is out of gratitude to God that we do our greatest work. Now, do you, th do you know why God takes a little time to tell Israel, to remind Israel, to warn Israel, all ways to be thankful because God knows that everything that's done in the new land, in the new day, that will last will be done by people who are grateful. That's the greatest motivation. Now, I used to go in high school, they'd have this hotshot evangelist to come to town, some youth evangelist, and... and uh, They'd have these services, you know, and they'd have these candles down at the front. I was in one service, you know, and if you want to give your heart to Christ and quit smoking and, and drinking beer and, and parking out on the country roads and all those things, you were to come down and get one of these candles and light it. And everybody was going, you know, and I, I, just, I, didn't really, that didn't really turn me on. I didn't, I didn't have that much to give up. I'm not going to tell you what I had to give up, but I, I'm not going to, I didn't have that much, but I just didn't. I just didn't think that was really that good of a motivation. All my friends would go down, you know, and they'd get real emotional, and they'd get a candle, and everybody light, and then they'd just kind of turn around and look at me, you know. When are you going to come down and get your candle and uh, say that you'll do all these things? Well, you know, you do that. After a while, and everybody's gone down to front, you go down to front. There's a little pressure there, peer pressure. I've noticed as I, you know, as I've come to, to, the, to uh, the years of ministry that a lot of what I've done for God is just because of what other people wanted me to do. 
Have you ever noticed that? Just a whole lot of what I've done for the Lord has been because somebody expected me to do it. And that's so tiring and defeating and despairing. And I made a discovery a few years ago that what really works, what really counts, what really lasts is what you do for God out of gratitude for what He's done for you. And so he says it, Paul says it, he said, we held up before you Christ crucified as the motivation for your service. And every man who serves God out of that kind of gratitude will serve Him for the rest of their life. And so the missionary went into the bush and he found a man who was blind. This medical missionary brought healing to his eyes. He said he got back to the city, back to the hospital, and one day he said he looked out the window and there was this man, this seeing man, and he had a line of folks all holding on to a rope, and each one of them was blind. I read not too long ago that Puccini was writing the score and the opera, Turindo. He finished the opera and he was finishing the score when he died. And his disciples finished the score for the opera Turindo. And Toscanini was commissioned to direct the orchestra and the opera. And at the point in the opera where Puccini had gotten, had written, Toscanini stopped and he turned around to the audience and he was emotional when he said, to this point, Puccini wrote, these, wrote this score, wrote this music. His disciples finished the master's music. If this world is hungry, it is not God's fault. If this world is bathed in the blood of its own violence, it is not God's fault. If this world is lost, it is not God's fault. For we are the answers. We are God's answer to a hurting world. We are His the realization of His dream and promise, and we're the fulfillment of His purpose. And so I went before God and I said, Oh Lord, I want You to make this a better world. And I stood before the map in the prayer room and I prayed, Oh God, I want You to bring to the masses of this world the same blessing You have brought to us. And God said, I will, but I will start with You. God of our fathers, known of old, Lord of our far-flung battle line, beneath whose awful hand we hold dominion over palm and pine, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget. Lest we forget. Would you bow and pray? Oh, Father... How often we are so prone to forget. 
But today, we have been stabbed to memory. And in our gratitude, oh, our Father, in our gratitude, we say, Lord, here am I, send me to a world that's hungry and hurting, haunted. Call out the best of us, Father, not for any display, not for any other reason or motivation than just out of gratitude and thanksgiving to be everything we were meant to be, to be the chosen people of God, to bring blessing to the world. And I pray that we'll quit praying, God bless us. And pray, Lord, help me to be a blessing. And in this invitation, Father, we pray for your will to be done, for the lost to be saved, out of gratitude for what Christ did, to come and give their life away to Him. For Christians to place their life in the full realization of your will. This is our prayer, in Jesus' name. Now look this way. Our invitations will be these this morning, just like always. The first invitation is for you to come publicly and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. He meant, if you'll just hang me on a cross to be crucified. When men see what I've done, they'll come and give their self to me. That was the gamble He took. He died for you, my friend. He took your sin away on His own body on the tree. Just come and claim that salvation, that gift for yourself. Come to be saved today. You'll have your sin forgiven. You'll be a new person. You'll know the new life. The second invitation this morning is for you to come and place your life in the church. Is there any other way for God to get His Word out and His will done in the world other than the church? The Holy Spirit would have told us. Come and place your life with us. Or perhaps you just need to come this morning to say, you know, I've taken and taken and taken. And I've never given. I want to give myself to God this morning in rededication of life. Or I want to come to say, I want to be a preacher. I want to be a missionary. I want to go and be a blessing to someone else. I think you'll do it. I think you're grateful people. Grateful people respond with grateful living. So you come on the first word. That'll be the easiest time to come while we stand, while our choir leads us. Come right now.